0: Father, thank you for this time in the Word. We always treasure this when we can come together corporately and study together. Uh, It is a joy to open our Bibles and know that we hear from you. What a a blessing. Uh, Only believers know that. We know when we open the Bible, we hear from you, Lord. And we find great comfort in that. So today as we look at a challenging passage, Lord, very Levitic- Leviticus-like, Lord, we pray that you'd give us wisdom. I pray you'd help me as uh, I teach this and that we would learn truths from this as we prepare to enter the promised land someday in heaven, Lord. We ask you to bless this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we looked at chapter 14. There was the great rebellion, right? The great rebellion against God and against uh Moses and Aaron and the and two spies that believed God and, and 10 spies that didn't, right? Remember this. And they uh, infected the entire nation. So the entire nation falls into a deadly, what I call the deadly grumbling spirit. And it was deadly because the judgment of God came down upon them and it flooded its way through this entire congregation. And and there, even though they saw the goodness that God had brought, sent back with the spies, he, they, saw, they knew the word of God that he promised to take them in. In the end, their fear was greater than the almighty God who brought them from Egypt. And they fell into deep rebellion. God was testing Moses, uh, showing his view of sin, and Moses quickly intercedes for the nation. And God does not wipe them out. Uh, He pardons them and withholds death for some time. All those over 20 would be sent into the wilderness, as we know. They would wander there for 40 years and die off. And then the next generation would be brought into the land. But despite the pardon from God, the nation continued to repel. We saw at the end of the chapter, they said, well, let's go take the land anyway. They don't take the Ark of the Covenant. Moses does not go with them. And they get wiped out by the Amalekites and the Canaanites. You see that at the end of chapter 14. Well, all of a sudden, we come to chapter 15. And we drop out of the narrative back into a very didactic, very Levitical-style instruction. And that's what we want to look at tonight and try to figure this out. Why it was put here and what we can learn from this. There's some deep truths in here and there's some hard passages in here. And we're going to tackle uh, that tonight and and see if that will encourage us as well. I believe it will. So let's look at a few points tonight. Number one, God graciously prepares the next generation for the promised land. God graciously prepares the next generation for the promised land. Well, When we come to chapter 15, after this divine judgment that takes place at Kadesh Barnea, where the promise that the older generation is going to die off and then they go try to fight that war and lose. After all of that, all of a sudden, we come back to a text that has this repeated Levitical type of pattern again. Uh, a very systematic uh, sacrificial offerings, right back to the repetition of that again, and then all of a sudden next week we'll see in chapter 16 we go back and we're back in the narrative. Korah's rebellion, or ground opens up and swallows a bunch of people that are that want Moses's job. <laughs> so quite a quite a switch there. But why why is chapter 15 here? Why do we return to this Levitical structure again and? And, and, and not stay in the narrative here. Well, I think there are some real significant things that take place here. And, and as we look at we'll start to understand. I think the key is in the first three verses. Just look at the first three verses with me. We won't read all of this as a long text, but I'll bring out some highlights so we can understand what's going on here. First three verses of chapter 15. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land where you are to live, which I am giving you. Then make an offering by, the, by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill the special vow, or a free will offering in your appointed times to make soothing aroma to the Lord for the herd, from the herd and from the flock. Well, I think right there we, we can start to answer the question a little bit. Why does he return to this Levitical pattern here? Well, you'll see in verse 2 a really important statement. He says, when you enter the land... So there's a clear instruction to the group that isn't going to die in the wilderness. This is the younger generation. So everything that's going to come from this is is preparation for them when they get into the land. Notice it says in verse 2, when you enter the land where you are to live. Now that's really clear instruction. This is a promise to that next generation that I will see you through this trial you will watch your family die off, but I will fulfill my promise. I will bring you into this land. And then notice the last phrase there, which I am giving you. He has not, he has not been deterred. God has not been deterred from his promise. I am going to bring this people into a promised land that I am giving, and you will live there. Now, I think that's pretty important when you hear from God through Moses, the, uh, the, uh, the mediator, that and he says that, that a million or whatever it is, that, that generation that's 20 years and old are going to die. We're going to bury you in the wilderness. Now, if I'm 20 or down, I'm going, that's not good. <laughs> and in fact, we are already numbered for our warriors, and that's all of our warriors, And we're going back out into hostile territory. And so God says, I made a promise, and I'm going to keep it. And so what we really see is that God is promising to bring this older generation in, in that they will come, they will live there. That means they're not going to die in the wilderness. They're going to live, and God is going to prepare this place for them. Remember in chapter 14, verse 31, where... The spies and those who rebelled against God said that their children would be prey. Remember that? Chapter 14, verse 31. That they would become prey upon these giants and these people in the land. The Lord is saying, no, they're not. I'm actually going to bring them in. I'm going to establish them there. They're going to live there. They're going to see life. That's what God does. He gives life. And, and so we, we find this extremely encouraging. And so now we understand, we begin to understand why he's going back through this. This is the younger generation. They're getting a little older now as they wander around the wilderness. Maybe they weren't paying attention to those Ten Commandments <laughs> when they were littler. Now God is getting them ready. How do you have a relationship with me? How do you come to me? How will you be reconciled to me? So that chapter now, what it's going to do is reveal um, the difference between uh, what we see is a, a willful sin against God, the older generation, and an in- ignorant sin against God. And so there's a willful sin, and God's going to zero in on this, this um, one author said a high-handedness sin against God at Kadesh Barnea. All the promises were given, we don't care, we don't believe you. We're not going there. We're going to get a leader, and we're going to go back to Egypt. That's a high-handed sin. That's a disregard for the pure word of God. But then there's those, and and when we look at this younger generation that he's going to bring in who were going to be the prey, they fall into a sin of ignorance. They, They didn't. Uh, we'll see him kind of separate them from them. Still sinful, still consequential, um, but yet he's going to pardon them and bring them into the land. And what we see is that God wastes no time. And one of the things I love about this passage is I began to understand it as I studied it, that he wastes no time because he said, Moses, okay, I will not destroy them and I will bring them in the land, and we see God wasting no time beginning to give instructions of what they're going to do in the land. In fact, when you study these instructions, you realize he's preparing this 20 and down group to be worshipers and not worshipers in vain like their parents were. And, and the reason we know it's in vain is we go, oh, God's great, oh, God's great, God splits sees, God does that, and then all of a sudden a trial comes and you abandon him. That's vain, isn't it? He split seas, drowned their enemies, fed them from the skies, flew in quail, uh, took care of them in all kinds of ways, brought them out of slavery. And yet when they, when they can't quite see how things are going to go and, and they give up on God, the abandoned God, that shows you their worship and all that they did was in vain. And so I think the Lord is preparing them through his servant Moses to not be worshipers in vain and to be ones who come in. One of the things I was talking about, I think, Aaron today a little bit. We were just kind of talking through this a little bit. As we'll see, Deuteronomy is a lot of sermons uh, by Moses. He's preparing this generation right here to go in the land. But then you get into Joshua. And Joshua, and I'm really looking forward. I think I'm going to keep preaching through Joshua because it's one of my favorite books because they're actually walking with God. The nation is, is successful in a lot of ways. I mean, they're they're just going through the land and just wiping people out by the grace of God and him ahead of them. It's really fun to study. That's this generation. That's this generation right now that he's speaking to in this text. And so there is a generation that does believe God, and they got to really believe him because the first one is, hey, we're going to go to Jericho. Guess what we're going to do? We're going to take our little gazoos, and we're going to march around this city, and we're going to blow on them, and the walls are going to come down. okay. They believed God, and the walls fell down. And they went from there, and they had a little stumble, right? Somebody, you know, Achan decides to bury some extra cash in the bottom of his tent, and that's not good. We had some problems there. But then they start working from one part of the land to the other, and God gives them. So this is a very important part. Now, the instruction for worship in this chapter is really kind of break, broke up in three sections. I broke it up a little more, but each section breaks it up, and you see in verse 1, it says, the Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the sons of Israel. Verse 1. Verse 17, he says it again. The Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the sons of Israel. Verse 37, same line. So each of these sections, I believe, is the goal of reviving hope in this next generation. We want, God wants this next generation not to be like their parents who didn't believe. He wants them to believe, put their hope in him, and follow him. So he's preparing their hearts and minds to believe in him to go into the land. Now, this is a, a, a clear just kindness of God, isn't it? Uh, this is an undeserving nation. And, and, and when we talk about the sins of innocence, don't miss the word sin. <laughs> it's still sin. Uh, these, these still rejected God in a sense and at some kind of level, though their parents did it at a, probably a higher level. Um, God is showing kindness here. Here's a group that, just like us, we don't deserve to go into the to go to heaven. But God provides through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, this undeserving nation, God is showing kindness to, and He's and He's giving them the promise. He's a, showing He's a promise keeping God. He's not going to wipe them out. And there's and there's more than just because He loves them. His seed is in them, right? Within all of this next generation, this 20 down is the seed of Christ. Somewhere in that tribe of Judah, there is a, there is a seed that's in one of those family members working its way through there, and the Lord is going to protect that seed and bring them into the land. Now, he's committed. You, when you study this text, you realize God is committed to continuing his relationship with his people. And and because he's going to bring his son through them, and he's giving them reminders of how you can come with me. Now, notice in the first 16 verses, without kind of reading all of that because it's it's a little tedious, one of the things you see is he's going over the instructions of what they're going to do in the land how this is all going to get applied as they get settled in the land. Now, people say, well, where was this? Is this one year into this? Is this two years into it? It's not very far into this. Um, But yet, God's time frame is so much different than us. We think 40 years. And in 40 years from now, yeah, I'm probably not here. But for God, you know, time, he's not, he's not captured, he's not bound by time. And so his goal is always to prepare people to be in the promised land. And so this is what he's doing. So when you study these offerings, there's, there's several aspects of his offerings. They're, they involve fruit. They involve other agriculture things like flour and oil, olive oil, um, wine, and, and then livestock. As you read kind of briefly to s- uh, scour down through these first 16 verses and all of this points to established people. Now, as I studied this, I said, well, there's no way they're going to have this kind of level of sacrificial system out in the wilderness, right? Forty years, wandering around in there, and you have to offer pure olive oil. So, so notice the text keeps saying, when you get into the land, when you get into the land. So so what this keeps saying is God is anticipating them. Yes, they're going to wander. Yes, these are consequences of their sin. But God is describing to them uh, a, vow, a vow offering, a special vows that they're going to do to him, a free will offering you see in verse 3, uh, an expression of thanksgiving. Then a special offering for feast and, and the special feast that God had set apart. They are to bring young bulls and fishers. And full-grown rams and male lambs. All of that says that's somebody settled that has that. You you just, I mean, they certainly certainly had some livestock with them, but what God is describing is a worship service that is in an established land. So ultimately, all these sacrifices were intended to bring reconciliation. Reconciliation between them and him back as they come into the land. Now notice this phrase, soothing aroma. It gets used throughout this text. Uh, It's a beautiful phrase. It's a constant reminder that God sees worship from us, sees worship from his people, and when done his way, it is beautiful to him. It's a soothing, it's it's an aroma that is pleasing to him is the idea of the Hebrew language there. And every offering was to have that intent. And as we begin to look back and we look at the older generation, you you must think, I mean, you got to think sometimes you go, what were their offerings like? Did they really believe what they were doing? Because when the moment of truth came and they're at the border, ready to go in, and they've done all this offering to God, they've done all this worship, supposed worship to God, at the first sign of testing that yes, this may be difficult, yes, this could be challenging, but God has promised, they bailed, and so maybe their worship wasn't as soothing aroma as it is as it should have been, and so Repeatedly in this text, God says to Moses, if they do this my way, it'll be a soothing aroma to me. And I think that's the goal of every Israelite that he wanted to have. Notice in verses 14 through 16 um, in, in Numbers chapter 15. Uh, Verses 14 and 15. If an alien uh, adjourns with you, so whether you're, what he's going to say, whether you're an Israelite or a foreigner here, or one be among you through your generations, and he wishes to make an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so he shall do. As the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and for the alien who sojourns with you, a perpetual ongoing statute throughout your generations as you are, so shall the alien be before the Lord. There is to be one law, one ordinance for you and for all the aliens who sojourn along with you. And so there is this reminder that whether you're a foreigner or um, an Israelite, you are to come to me the way I've asked you to come. No other way. There's one way to me, one way to do it, one way to come. Come that way and it will be soothing to me whether you're a natural-born Israelite or you're a foreigner. Now, worship is extremely important to God, isn't it? He desires our worship. And he desires our worship in a way that it is a soothing aroma to him. And we hear this kind of language in the New Testament as well. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 says this. Through him, then, speaking the context of Jesus Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. So there is, remember we just read, there's a perpetual sacrifice. He's telling them there's a perpetual sacrifice. Here in Hebrews, which is the great explanation of, of the new covenant, uh, all all how the old covenant was all pointing forward to the fulfillment in Christ, says that this is a perpetual, a continual offering to the sacrifice of Of God, to praise of Him. And then it says, that is the fruit of the lips of giving thanksgiving to His name. And so the Bible reminds us as Christians, this is how we continually come to the Lord. Now, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul leads them into worship again after 11 chapters of doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. He says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present continual tense, keep presenting over and over, keep your body, uh, present your body as a living sacrifice, living, holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And so uh, when I read that, when I was working on that, I thought, well, yeah, he tells them this perpetual worship. Well, that's what we do. I-, I hope worship is not just here. If it is, we all have a lot of problems, right? If we're one thing in here and another thing out there, we are going to come up to a trial and we're going to abandon God. It's living the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we come. We live the Lord Jesus Christ here. We're, man, he's in our midst. We, we enjoy, we sense this work of the Spirit among us, the gathering which stimulates one of others, uh, stimulates us to good works and good deeds, Hebrews chapter 10. We're, we're here practicing these things together, but it's out there that it really counts, right? And it, it, it's there where, the, as, as J. Verda McGee, the old preacher I grew up with, said, it's there where the rubber meets the road. It's there in the doctor's office. It's there when tension is in the marriage where worship matters. How, how am I going to handle this situation or am I going to abandon it and a complaining spirit take over? And so God is, and I, I love this, the more I thought about this today, I thought God is preparing this next generation to be perpetually worshiping him. Is that us? It's good to think about, isn't it? Am I a worshiper? Did I worship this week? Second thought here, the worship of the Lord in small things. Worship the Lord in small things. Look at verse 17 through 21. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, here's another section now, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land, isn't that interesting? It's not if. It's when you enter the land where I bring you, then it shall be that you, uh, that when you eat the food of the land, you shall lift up an offering to the Lord of the first of your dough you shall lift up as cakes as offerings an offering from the threshing floor so you shall lift up from first uh, from the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord an offering throughout your generation Well I think this is little things right and here here throughout the the books of the law these first 5 books that we call the pentateuch the reader is is constantly reminded that God is a God who brings in a harvest to them. And, and and there's festivals set up for for the early harvests and the late harvests. All these festivals are around that because God gives a harvest. That's what he does and, we're, and he, he's reminding them. But not only was he giving them a harvest, he wanted a portion from that harvest. And, and part of that portion was to go to the priest and part of that was for worship of the Lord. And and so there's small things here. And, and as I thought about this, I thought, this is, this is interesting. God's meeting the needs of the Levites because they couldn't they couldn't work. Their job was to minister between the people and God. And so we hear this all through the law, right? In Leviticus 23, we talked about this in verse 10. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land. He says this so many times throughout this, these first five books. When you enter the land, which I'm going to give you, reap it and harvest it. Then you will bring the sheaves of the first fruit, to the harvest and to the priest. Numbers chapter 18, he'll come back to this again. All, the best, all of the best fresh oil and all of the best fresh wine and of the grains, the first fruit of those that I give to you, you will give to me. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 4, you shall give him, the Levites, the first fruit of the grain, the new wine, your oil, and the first shearings of your sheep so he he's one he's supplying for that, but he's also saying, "Look, I'm bringing you to a land of, of that's flowing with milk and honey as I give you this, give back to me, be a worshiper of me, give back what i a portion of what I've given to you. We hear that all the way through the Bible now notice in verse twenty through twenty one he talks about flour here, and this is where I got this idea of small things. Some might think well why why would he have him give this little bit of fine?" Flour, this dough that's, maybe it's a cake that's kind of rolled in there. Well, I think it's God teaching them that no matter how small of the fruit of the land that would come from them, whether that's some ground grain or not, God wants a portion of that back. And so the instruction that the Hebrews receive here is to understand that though flour was inexpensive, it was this very small item, God wants a portion of that, and he wants you to give it as a thank offering to him. Even, even down to that, I think it's one of the reasons why, uh, that we should be careful even about our prayers when we're just out to eat or we sit down and pray and we get really repetition in our prayers before our meals. But, but really, that's our, that's our time of Thanksgiving, isn't it? Lord, this food that you have given us I really learned to change my language once we had children because I wanted them to realize that what we had was coming from God, and so I changed my language when we started to pray with the boys when they were little. Lord, we want to take a moment here and thank you for what you've given to us. See, that keeps you in a perpetual state of worship, even at a meal, instead of like, you know, Lord, bless the meat, let's eat where you're just consumed with hunger and you're over that, you know, you stop, you settle yourself down, you keep yourself in worship, even in a meal. Lord, we want to just take a moment and thank you for this Chick-fil-A or whatever you got in front of you, right? We know it comes from you. Everything good comes down from the Father above, the Bible tells us. And so he's teaching this next generation to be thankful for things. I also thought about this. I think this command goes all the way down to the housewife. You know, in a lot of In a lot of the law, when we've talked about the difference of women and their role and what what they could and couldn't do even in the Old Testament, I look at this and I go, wow, God is allowing a housewife who's baking bread to participate in worship. And maybe it was her who took that little bit of cake, that little bit of dough, and, and set that apart for the Lord and sent it over to the tabernacle so part of it could be given to the Lord and the other part could be given to the priest to meet their needs. She had a really sweet role in that as she, as she kneaded out that bread and prepared that for God and for the priest. Ezekiel chapter 44 verse 30 says this, the first of all of the first fruits of every kind and every contribution contribution of every kind and all of your contributions shall be for the priest and you shall give to the priest the first of your dough to cause a blessing to the rest of your house. So what a beautiful thing in, in the Hebrew world, a very ancient world, uh, where she could take even part of that and be a part of that gift to the Lord and to those uh, priests that labored in her behalf. Now, in Jesus' day, this all got turned into a ritual. Um, I read a little bit on this, and one commentator said that uh, the rel- the religious elite would make sure that, they somehow twisted this. Um, they would come in, they would take a handful of flour, and they would heat their own stove up, and they would throw, instead of taking it to the temple, they would throw it in their own, Fire and, and offer to God there because they were too lazy to take it down to the temple. But then they would also say, I have an altar myself right here to God. And so they, they were so set on making sure they wouldn't break the law, but they were too lazy to go all the way to the temple. Now, Jesus exposes this uh, Matthew chapter 23, verse 23 what do you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe the mint and the deal and the coming and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. But if these are the things you should have been uh, done without neglecting the others. And so what he's saying is you're, you're there in your room, your room and you're, 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 you're separating a tenth of this little bit of flour, and you're making sure that it's not too much because I don't want to give my stuff away here. And you're so set on just giving this or you're counting out your beans or you're counting out your little teeny deal seeds and making sure that only one out of ten goes and so that I can do that. But then I'm, then I'm neglecting the widows. I'm, I'm running my parents out of their own house because they're not paying rent. I mean, you know the woe patches is what he does. He really goes after them. And they did not care about the more important things. They, did, they didn't care about mercy and justice and faithfulness. But they were so set on doing that. And so here God's trying to teach them to worship in the home. Make sure your home is worshipful. Set, set the, even the simplest things, a little bit of dough, a little bit of flour. Set that aside for me and the priests that serve. And then by the time you get to Jesus' day, it's this whole legalistic thing. And we've we're, we're, we got these little seeds that we can barely see and make sure but we don't give them too many. And we certainly don't want to have enough because, you know, I give a ten. So you can see that the heart of man is desperately wicked, and God is preparing this next generation not to be like their parents. And so God intended these Israelites and all those who came with them to experience worship every day, experience every day. Third, there is a sin of ignorance and a sin of willfulness. This is a little longer section, section 22 through thirty. Uh, one. I just want to read two different passages here to get the idea. Because he's, he's really now going to establish what do they do with the differences of a sin of ignorance and this willful sin. This willful sin killed their parents, right? This is what's causing them to die in the wilderness. So he's going to address these things. Look at 22 through 24, and then we'll drop down to 30 through 31. But when you unwittingly... Unintentionally fail, and you do not observe the commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, even all that the Lord has commanded you. Through Moses, from the day when the Lord gave commandments and onward through all your generations, then it shall be if it is done unintentionally without the knowledge of the congregation, that all of the congregation shall offer one bull for the bull a off, uh, burn offering and a soothing aroma to the Lord with its grain offerings and its drink offerings according to the ordinances, and one male goat for a sin offering. He goes on to give some more details on that, drop down to verse thirty. 30, um, 30 and 31. The person who does anything defiantly, now this is a, the, the, the willful rejection rebellion, right? Whether he is a native or an alien, that one blasphemes the Lord. Now remember, your, your parents are dying in the wilderness, and God's talking about this, and you're starting to put two and two together. You're starting to understand He's speaking about your parents. Whether he's a native or alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Now think about that. They're going, that's what God's doing right now. That's why we're having funeral services every day. They blasphemed God because they did not believe him and they're dying off. And so he's reminding them there is a difference here. Uh, we were young. We were just kind of going along with the crowd. We, we really didn't know what was happening. But, but now we understand our, our older generation rejected God when God had brought them to the border. And we need to understand what he's doing. Look at verse 31. Because he has despised the word of the Lord. He's going right back to this. And look at this next phrase. And has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off, his guilt will be upon him. So, right here, God is beginning to separate what I've kind of entitled sin of ignorance and sin of willfulness. So, this is one of the more difficult sections in the book of Numbers when you study this because uh, there's a lot of people who have struggled with this passage. And this section deals with the subject of this unintentional sin and this willful sin. Um, and that's doubtlessly just what happened at Cadis Bardina, as I've been explaining here. But the emphasis is clear. It's unmistakable. You can read this text. Look at it. The sin that was committed willfully, this high-handed sin, there there was no, no capacity for atonement. They'll be cut off. The punishment was strict. They're cut off. And they have these, of course, eventually died in the wilderness. But the sin of ignorance here certainly carries its own consequences. They, they walked around for 40 years in the wilderness before they got to go in, but eventually the next generation was allowed to come into the promised land. Now, doubtlessly this raises a lot of questions, doesn't as you start to think about this, and and questions on forgiveness, questions on repentance, questions about salvation and all those things. And there is a... Distinction in the New Testament, and you, or you might think, is there a distinction in the New Testament? What's the sociol? I mean, what's the soteriology between the Old Testament and New? Well, first of all, God always says it's the same way: salvation is by faith alone. And we and we read last week that in, in Hebrews chapter uh, four, it said that the na- that part of the nation that didn't believe they they didn't believe because they didn't have faith, so they didn't enter into rest because they didn't believe God. So, so that's what caused that sin, and that causes this judgment upon God. If you don't if you reject God, if you don't have faith in God, right? Salvation is through Christ alone, grace alone, and faith alone. If you don't have faith in, alone, in God, you're not saved. Old Testament, New Testament. Right? Same. I can't go to heaven and say, Well, thanks for the grace. I really didn't have faith in you, but I'm here anyway. I'm not getting in. Salvation is by faith alone. It's empty-handed, right? I don't have anything to offer you. But, by the grace of God, I believe in you so so that was rejected, and so what that's what this un, unintentional and willful sin starts to about, starts to play out here now. willful sins are an act of rebellion against God, His good and perfect will, so God had a good and perfect will for them, they rebelled against it so um, someone may say, well, the Old Testament and the New Testament seem to be kind of different on that. But no, they're not. In fact, clearly the New Testament has certainly a better covenant, right? It's wider and, and, and uh, uh, greater. The New Covenant's greater. It's, it's, we, he had, Jesus came to fulfill the first, uh, to usher in the second. We understand all that, but it all comes down to faith. Now, we do see this same kind of sins in the New Testament. Unintentional willful and it's interesting which one God judges with death and which one he pardons because remember it's par- he's pardoning a group here another group's going to die another group's going to go in both sinned, but let's see what some of the New Testament says about this Luke chapter 23 verse 34 I'm just going to read you some verses and you start thinking about this but Jesus was saying he's hanging on the cross here father forgive them for they do not know what they're doing interesting Crucifying Jesus. Father, forgive them. Let me give you a few more. Acts chapter 3, verse 7, Peter's second sermon. Another 5,000 people get saved after this sermon. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did. Unintentional. Acts 17 30, Mars Hill, Paul preaching before he goes to Corinth. Um, over in Athens, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that all people everywhere should repent. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, speaking about himself, Paul says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer. Now that seems intentional, doesn't it? And that seems willful. And a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Now listen to what Paul says. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. God spares his life. But then there's these dire warnings throughout the New Testament of those who willfully continue to sin against God. You've got to look at one of these, and I'll read the rest of them. Go to Hebrews chapter 6. Because there are these same dire warnings. And again, I'm going I'm to keep coming back to this. The difference is faith. And I'm going to give you a really good example, and when I say it, you're going to go, oh, I see. But let me read you for a few verses here. Chapter 6, verse uh, four through eight, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gifts and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word uh, the good word of God and the power of the age to come, and then fall away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the son of god put him to open shame for the and then he gives an illustration of this for the ground that drinks in the rain which often falls on it brings b- brings forth vegetation useful to those whose sake it is also tilled receiving the blessing from god but if it yields thorns and thistles The same rain falls on the same ground, it's worthless and and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. So he gives a real difference. Here's two people. They they both hear the, the, the word of God, they taste the work of God. They're around Christians whose lives have been changed. They, they've seen worship. They've experienced some things because they've been around the edges of it. And yet, they reject the Lord Jesus Christ. They reject salvation. They don't have faith to put faith in him. They are the thorns and thistles that grow out of the same ground that was watered by the same gracious God, and they are burned up, and the other ones are fruitful. You see the difference? So he's showing the difference of, of those who have faith and those don't. What I'm getting at here is you and I, we, we still sin, don't we? Is everybody in agreement with that? Sinners still sin. I mean, saved sinners still sin, right? So, but we have faith. And so God, we may have some consequences from those sins, right? Because God will discipline the ones he loves. So we will have that from time to time, but we still go to the promised land. The difference is those who willfully sin against God, they don't have faith in God. When the trial comes, they reject God, and they end up burning with the thorns and thistles. And and the Bible teaches this all the way through. We find all kinds of this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth... This doesn't mean this is a saving faith. This doesn't mean loss of salvation. This is a warning. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So if you reject Jesus, there's nothing else that can get you there. Right? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's Jesus plus this. No, oh, there's no sacrifice for you. See, there's a real difference, right? Faith. So we, that God has given faith to, we still sin, but yet God still takes us into the promised land, right? Because by faith we believe that Jesus died for us. His, his blood washes back over our sins and washes forward to the ones that we haven't even committed yet. Because by faith we believe in him. But there's those who hear the same message that don't have faith. And they've been tasted all the things God has done to a certain level they reject him when the trial comes. 1 John 5 16 says this If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, isn't that interesting? There are sins not leading towards eternal, eternal death. He shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins not leading to death. There are sins that don't lead to death. I hope so, right? Because I commit them. And you do too. And we go to our Lord and say, will you forgive me? I know your son died for this, and and I know he's forgiven me, and and I don't want to live that way. I know that sin caused your death, and, and Lord, thank you for forgiveness of the cross. See, that's not leading to death. But the verse goes on. There is a sin leading to death. See, no faith. There's sin that leads to death. And I say to you that he should make this request for you. Mark chapter 3, verse 29 probably puts it all together. But those who blaspheme against the Holy Spirit never have forgiveness, but are guilty of eternal sin. See, blaspheme in the Spirit, people go, ah, that's a sin that is. Well, of course it is. Because if you reject the Holy Spirit, who is the one who gives us regeneration, there is no hope for you. You're rejecting forgiveness from God. You reject the Holy Spirit, you reject the forgiveness from God, and there is no hope for you because you have no faith. And so when we're all the way back in chapter 15 of Numbers, I'm trying to help you understand there's two different groups wandering around the wilderness. There's a group that completely rejected God, and there was those who were going to have faith, and they were going to believe in God, and they were going to go into Though they sinned too, they're going to go into the promised land. Isn't that incredible? I start digging this passage going, Lord, I've never seen this before. Let me give you a few more examples to help you understand this. David uh, uh, pleads with God. Over his presumptuous sins. You know what they were? Adultery, murder, lie to the nation. Top three <laughs> on any playlist, right? David says this, Psalms 19, uh, uh, 13. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted from, uh, of great transgressions. That's a timeless prayer, isn't it? Lord, keep your servant back from presumptuous, willful, arrogant sin. I'm going to sin, Lord. There's times I'm just, I'm I'm not going to be in that worshipful mode, and and I'm going to do things that that I shouldn't do. And help me be, I always say this, have short accounts, recognize those sins quickly and repent of those, right? But David says, keep me from that willfulness. I don't want to be that one. And he, he, so you're you're seeing Paul. I mean, David knew he knew his Old Testament law. He knew this passage, that God brought judgment on those who were presumptuous in their sin. They were willful against the will of God, and he didn't want any part of that. Now, it's important to understand that how uh, how innocent were the sins. Uh, excuse me. Uh, the, those, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, Jesus says forgive. Let me get back to this. Jesus, forgive those, Father. They don't know what they're doing. And you go, you are killing Jesus. You go, wait a minute. How innocent is that? How how what, how can we call that a sin of innocence? But Jesus says forgive them, and and so it's you. You start wrestling with this a little bit, and you begin to understand how how come they are over that Christ says, Lord, forgive them. You have David who is uh, rejecting the, the two great commandments, thou shalt not commit murder and, and adultery, right? And, and you start wrestling through this. How, how does this work? Well, for starters, we must accept that the sin of in, in, uh, ignorance, um, in, in bra- God embraces a much larger view of that, right? He, he looks at this differently than we do. So if we look, let me give you an example. If you look and you line up the sins of Judas and the sins of Peter and you come at it from a human standpoint of view, which one do you think is worse? I think Peter is. He calls down curses from God himself that he would be struck dead if he has anything to do with this man. It's a complete denial and rejection of Christ. And yet God forgives peter and judas hangs himself peter has faith and repents judas has nothing else to do but go to his death so what do you say scott what are you doing with this here's what i'm doing you and i have no idea who's presumptuous and who's innocent in their sins that's god's job and, and so he's, but he can see it. And when you're in Numbers chapter 15, he's helping them realize, look, your folks were presumptuous in their sin. You went along with this. You were ignorant, but you have faith and you're going to believe me. And here's how you can be right with me. And this is why I'm going to bring you into this promised land. And he's showing the difference, but it is only God who can see this. So willful sin is a complete revolt and rebellion against God. With no mixture of, of ignorance or, or weakness, it's, it's, it's unforgivable, right? And that's what he does. When I was a little boy, I used to think,, um, yeah, I got saved young, and I said, "Well, God, I would think I would ask God, why don't you save Satan?" Did anybody ever think this, or I'm just kind of weird?" I thought that would solve a lot of problems, right? We get the, you know, the red devil fixed here, we can you know that's going to be good. But the more I studied the Bible and the more I started studying Satan and started to trying to understand him, even as a youngster, I began to realize that he can't be converted because his entire spirit is completely willfully sinful. He was this God. Well, wait a minute here. Isn't fallen man deprived, right? There's none, none righteous, none good, right? None desire, none seek after God. Isn't that? Absolutely. But, but God, see, God sees the difference, See, he sees the difference in one he's going to save versus what he sees in Satan. He knows we're fully deprived. We have no goodness in us. We have no righteousness on our own to be able to get us to God. We don't seek after him. He understands our depravity, but he knows he's going to grant us faith to believe. And he also knows who will continue to reject them till eternity. He has that divine ability to do that. And there's a point where willful sin passes a place of no return. And the great thing is, brothers and sisters, you and I don't know what that is. And I love that about this. And only God knows this. And and so I tell people all the time, there is a divine line that belongs to God and you dare not cross it. Why? Because he saves thieves on the cross in the last moments of their life. That thief on the cross did not sin to a presumptuous sin where he was given over to his sin to be in full judgment for the rest of his life. That thief wasn't. And if you're standing there and he's mocking Christ before before he repents and he's up there because he's a thief and and who, whatever else, a murderer gets released and Braavis and so forth, everything seems unjust. God has in his plan from the foundations of the world was to save that young man. And you and I, if we're looking at that scene going, well, he's getting what he deserves. But that's what he does. And that's what I love about this. And I start thinking about presumptuous sins and and ignorant sins is God sees the difference. And and again, you come back to Judas and, and Peter and you go, wow. Peter's sin, you know, ranking as a human and lining those things up was far worse than Judas. But God granted Peter faith. Judas had no recourse. So it's God and God alone who determines who are his and whose are not. And let me say it this way in in the context of Numbers 15. It is God who decides, who goes into the promised land. Not us. What do we do? We accept the commands of God, we submit to Him, and we walk according to His way because He is directing us to the promised land. We're not going to the promised land because of the things we do, it's because of the things God did through Jesus Christ. And we trust Him. And we look over at our dying relatives who rejected the Lord and go, God, I am so grateful you gave me faith. Help me to be a witness for you. I don't know. And, I, and that's what I love about the doctrine of salvation. We have no idea who God's saving. I mean, how many of you would say, would get up here and give your testimony and go, you can't believe who I was before I was saved. I would be the last person you would think that God would save. And and I love that about God, and and that's what we see him do. Christ is on earth, and what's he doing? He's hanging out with with tax collectors and, and prostitutes and sinners. And the religious leaders are going absolutely berserk. Who's he hanging with? He's hanging with the people that are going to the promised land. They don't look like it on the outside, but he knows hearts of all men. The ones that know the word of God, they memorized it, they had it. They wouldn't even go near those people. Look, God does an amazing things, and he knows the heart of people. He knows who's willfully a sinner and who isn't. So two generations, when you look at Cadus Bardia, you go, there's two different generations here and two different people, one lacking faith. Hebrews says they don't go in because they did not mix it with faith. Now, one more thought on here. Um, all of us should never assume anyone, and I just want to hit this one more time, is a willful sinner who cannot be saved. In fact, I would ask you to pray for those people particularly that you know. And for some, that might be a family member that you just say, there's just no way, this person ha- it just has no desire for God. Pray for them. Pray that God would grant them faith. Ask God to do a miracle so you could watch them do it. Um, I'm almost done here. Let me hit hit these last two points. Exhibit A for a willful sin. Now, you go, well, Scott, what does that look like? Go back to your passage um, in Numbers chapter 15. And I think he gives us a great example here. I think this is one of the reasons why it's so hard to teach through the books of the law like this, because uh when you start digging into it, they're, they're bottomless like the rest of the scriptures, look at verse thirty two through thirty six while the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, so they're out there now wandering, you got the scene right old the older generation's dying off funerals every day. they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath uh oh exhibit a those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron into all the congregation. And they put him into custody because it, it, had been, he, it had not been declared what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So all of the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And you go, wow, for picking up some sticks. Well, is that just what he was doing? I think this is a tragic example, but used of God to uh, show what was going on, and clearly this incident is a practical illustration of willful sin. I- in fact, there's no excuse here. Uh, I read commentary after commentary on this. Uh, they all say the same thing. The one, the one law that is established more than any law is keep the Sabbath. You were taught that. It, it's taught over and over, whether it's uh, whether it's in the laws of uncleanness or cleanliness or, or uh, rest or all those things, it's taught over and over that the Sabbath was holy and was to be set aside. And then you say, well, why did he do this? Well, it comes back to that presumptuous sin. And let me ask you a question, why do we sin? Or, or let's, better yet, let's put ourselves in this guy's position. Guess who's not out there on the Sabbath getting all the firewood that you need on Monday? Nobody. And you think, I'm going to get a leg up. How many of us love to get to the front of the line and things? Like, you know, let's hurry. They're coming. Let's get to the, front of the line first. We have this natural tendency to get somewhere first, right? We want to we have first place in a lot of things. There's a natural tendency to do that. Let's hurry. Let's hurry. Let's get to the line first. Those type of things. And, and I'm just guessing what this guy's doing, but he knows the law and he is presuming on God. And let me tell you this he's faithless. Faithless don't. Go to the promised land. And and this, I mean, it is graphic, and it's hard for us 21st century Christians to get our mind around this. This is a faithless person who rejects the word of God. The word of God said, do not gather wood on on the Sabbath. Do not go out and do that. He rejects the word of God. He does not have faith in God. And what happens to him? He dies. He does not enter the land. Only those with faith enter. And this is a perfect example. And so God puts this right in front of us to see this great example here. Um, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 44, uh, verse 3, For we who have be- believed enter the rest. Just as I swore by myself, God says, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my ra- rest. All the Uh, although his works were finished from the foundations of the world. So they, they reject it. This man right here is a great example. He rejects the word of God, and he does not enter the rest. Great example. Last thought here. Badges of faithfulness for God or for ourselves. Look at this last set of verses here, verse 37 through 41. The Lord, the Lord again spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments. You've been all wondering why when you drive Granada, why they have them. We're going to find out here throughout their generations. And that they shall put on the tassels of each of the corners uh, a cord of blue and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all of the commandments of the Lord, so as to do them and not follow after your own heart or your own eyes, after which you play the harlot, so that you may remember to do all the commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Now, (laughs) After this tragic example, the Lord gives a command to this younger generation that they're to put tassels on the corners of their garments to remind them of the commandments of God so they don't willfully sin against, so they put their faith in God daily. Now, I don't know why they wear them today. It's interesting. I saw a couple of them jaywalking the other day. I thought, hmm, (laughs) maybe they need a little longer tassels. They could trip over them or something. Um, They're there to remind you. That's what he said. I'm, and now, of course, it becomes this, this huge problem, right? Matthew chapter 23, verse 5, the woe passage. Jesus says, but you do all these deeds to be noticed by men. You broaden your phylacteries and you lengthen your tassels for your garment. God's telling this younger generation, look, I want you to put these on to remind you not to go against my word, to believe me. Believe in what I say. That's what those things were. So when you're about ready to do something and you put your hand down, you go, oh, we tie things on our finger. What do we do? <laughs> we don't do that. That's maybe something to remember. What do we do? We hide God's word in our hearts so that we don't sin against him. So that's the right. The writers of the psalmist said. So instead of tassels, they said we now hide God's word into our in our hearts so we don't sin against him. That's God's plan for us. Let the word of Christ richly dealt with, dwell within you. Well, what about this blue? I've got to hit this blue real quick in there. Blue was always associated with kings and royalty, right? And so it was not only a reminder that they were to remember the commandments of God so it doesn't happen to the same thing that happened to their parents. They're to remember these commandments. Don't go collect wood on, on, on the Sabbath, for starters. But it was also to remind them they were part of a king um, of priests. The Lord said, back in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So remember what I said, and remember you're from royalty. Well, that's pretty cool, isn't it? But there's a trump card for the new covenant. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. These are Christians. But you, a chosen race... A royal, there's that blue, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are a people of God. You once did not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. Christian, remember who you are. You now are tied to the royalty of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are his family. You are his kingdom. Remind yourself of that. We have to remember that, otherwise sin will overtake us at times. And every time, listen, I tell myself this all the time, I sin because I put Jesus out of my mind for a moment. And when I have him in my mind and I think about the royal position that God has given me, undeserved by his grace, that's the best thing you can do to keep from sinning. And that's what biblical counseling is. When I'm trying to help somebody get through something, get their minds back to Christ. Be consumed with Christ. Your marriage gets better. Your parenting gets better. Everything gets better. You may not get richer. You may go through more trials, but you have Christ to get through them. What a beautiful reminder. So today, many Christians may wear badges around their neck, maybe you have a cross on, or you or maybe you just dress modestly because you want to honor the Lord, but the Lord's after your heart. And and it's a reminder. He he's after that. And so I I don't wear tassels. That was for the Old Testament. That was for them to remember not to sin like their parents did. But for us, our badge is that Christ hangs on our heart now, man. He has us. He's given us faith. And he's everything we need, and we belong by faith to the king of kings. We are royal. I love that pra- passage. Royal race, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, holy ethnos of people. We are God's new race. Think about that. A holy eth The word is ethnos in the Greek. A holy nation of God's people. They're the only ones that are going to cross the finish line. It is that group that's only going to the promised land. Nobody else is going in. It's all by faith through Jesus Christ alone. Amen? All right. Father, thank you for Numbers chapter 15. We could spend a lot of time there, Lord. There's a lot of truths that flow forward and are fulfilled in the new covenant. Um, But we thank you, Lord, that you don't give us what we deserve. And, Lord, I I think I can pray for most everybody in this room. I pray, Lord, that we want to thank you for giving us faith. Because without faith, we would come up against your promised land to the border, and we would reject you. But you granted us faith, and we believe. And yes, Lord, we still have sin. that It's, it's not innocent, Lord, but, but it's not presumptuous at times, Lord. We, we really do love you. And so we know that that faith leads us to know how to repent, leads us to know how to have short accounts to be with you, and so that we can be in your presence for eternity, Lord. In fact, those who have true saving faith, we're positionally right there with you because where Christ is, we are. But Lord, we thank you that our faith also teaches us to say no to sin. It teaches us to be godly men and women and young people that love the Lord, who believe, and, and though we may stumble and fall at times, we get back up. We, you've given us a way to be quickly reconciled with you through the Lord Jesus Christ, and that personal fellowship can be restored uh, quickly because of Christ's work, Lord. And we pray that we would be men and women, young people of faith, Lord, and we'd live that way. Thank you, Lord, that you don't require works from us, Lord. That would be terrible. We would have the long tassels and we'd have all kinds of things on us if we were trying to do that, Lord. Thank you that we don't do that. Thank you that you grant us faith and that motivates us to find the good works that you've prepared in advance for us to do so that we can worship you with those good works. Lord, bless this group tonight. Thank you for them coming out, Lord. Thank you for... Great instruction of the word of God. So fun to dig into this and learn from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.